There's something curious about this broadcast. T-minus 10, 9, 8, 7, and we have main engine start. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, and liftoff. This is TGP nominal. Commence episode now. All systems remain nominal. 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 Hello everybody and welcome to TGP Nominal, your monthly look at all things science fact and science fiction. I hope you enjoyed the TGP Nominal Extra that we brought to you at the beginning of the month with uh, Ross Hockham from UK Astronomy. And I hope you agree with us that we've made the right decision to try and separate them so that if there are any astronomical events that happen earlier in the month you guys won't miss them so that's the reason why we did it and hopefully that's come across quite well obviously this is the main show so i've got to bring somebody into the equation mr burger how you doing hey that, that you sonny it's, it's been so long since we've been a space related episode that i don't remember Actually, I don't remember the last time we did a space-related episode. So, so you thought I was joking, did you? <laughs> <laughs> we are bad people. We're sorry, folks. Especially when there's so much space, you know, so many space-related things going on. Yeah, there are. There's lots going on at the moment, and and it's not just from the usual parties. It's everywhere. Everywhere there's something space-related going on at the moment, and that's just awesome. So what's been going on with you? What's been going on with me? Oh, okay. Now, even though this episode is going to be space related and we're not really going to be talking about comics, science fiction and blah, blah, blah. I've got to talk about TennoCon and I've <laughs> got to talk about the things associated with it. Dude, that 3D printer was one of the best things I ever got. <laughs> I bought that hoping that it would be more to spark the kids creativity. Let them see how they can build things and, and that sort of thing. Let them design some cute toys or devices or whatever. Because my youngest daughter, is, she's got the mind of an engineer. We've got that figured out. She could easily be an engineer when she grows up. But I have been doing so much with that. It's, a, it's amazing. And the stuff that I'm now coming up with because of that stupid 3D printer, I want to build more things than I think I've wanted to build in decades. So TennoCon is the big convention from the folks at Digital Extremes who produced the game Warframe. Big game, it's got something like 25 million registered players to it. It's consistently one of the top 10 games for popularity in Steam. It's a big deal. You know, you, you can log on anytime you're playing with people around the world. And it's a, I love it. You, you, you play as a space ninja. I can't even explain what you do. They've expanded on it so much. It's actually reached MMO levels. It's no longer just a team-based go-in-and-shoot-things third-person shooter. They've added so much more to it. But Tenocon, it well, the Tenno is the character that you play. So Tenocon is their convention. It's a one-day convention dedicated to Warframe. So one of the things that I did, just from poking around, seeing what stuff I could print off, is one of the most powerful pistols in Warframe called Alex Prime. And a guy over in Belgium actually designed the, the 3D files for it, and he made them available. And they're gorgeous. They're absolutely perfect replicas of the Lex Prime in-game. And I saw that, I was like, oh, I am doing that. Download the files. Put it, I mean, it takes a couple of weeks because there are lots of different parts. They have to be spray-painted individually, and then you have to assemble them. And then other parts need to be hand-painted and so forth. 
but the gun is gorgeous. It is absolutely gorgeous. And I figured, well, one of them is a Lex Prime. And in-game, if you have a set of them, it's called Aclex Prime. So I figured, I've got time before Tenocon. I've, I've got enough time that I can print off another one. So I did. And I posted it up on Twitter once they were all done and assembled. And I was like, Warframe, would, would you guys mind if I take this to Tenocon? Please, please, please. Only because we've become so freaking paranoid about anything that looks like a gun anymore that I was like, okay, I didn't want to put all this work into it, take it up there, and then suddenly be told, no, sorry, you can't bring it in. So after putting it up there, uh, Megan Everett, who's the community manager for Warframe, or, well, for Digital Extremes, you know, she's she's one of those people where I've seen them so much at, at PAX East and so forth that they know me by name. <laughs> so she'll be like, hey, John, how's it going? <laughs> Which is really kind of cool. But uh, she tweeted back. She's like, oh, my God, absolutely, you can bring those to TennoCon because she was blown away with how good of a job uh, this guy did. Uh, and, and, and on Twitter, he goes by the name of Shrubsy really really talented he makes some amazing video game weaponry he uh, makes the 3d prints available and people can do it he's just really good at what he does i finally started to design my own stuff because i needed a holster i'm not going to carry it around all the time so i designed a holster one for the left one for the right hooks onto my belt it's got the warframe lotus logo on it in a couple of different areas you know and it's got gold highlights and all that and the lex primes just sit on those brought them up to tenocon the people who were smiling and pointing and saying oh my god that is so cool made it completely worthwhile <laughs> it was amazing people i'm just walking by in the line and they're like oh my god look at that you know that sort of thing you know it just started so i'm at the main entrance and rebecca ford who's like the lead community manager Warframe players know her as the voice of the Lotus. She walks in, and again, it's the same thing. She's like, hey, John, how's it going? Good to see you again. High five, all that thing. And I showed the gun to her. She's like, oh, my God, that's amazing. So I got pictures with her. I got pictures with Megan, um, with some of the other community developers, with some of the actual game developers. Because Steve, who's the lead creative director, he was there. Jeff, who's the lead art director, he was there. So all these people are going nuts over these silly 3D printed guns. I mean, I'm in line and people are running up to me saying, did you design those? And in, in fairness, every time somebody asked me about it, I said very bluntly, I didn't design them. I put them together, but they were actually designed by a guy over in Belgium. So I wanted to give Shrubsy all the credit because really he's the one who deserves all the credit for, you know, for designing them and making them available. But I mean, I even found another guy who found those same 3D print files and he printed one. So he and I were hanging out and just talking about 3D printing and, and designing and so forth. Uh, there's even a team there who professionally makes things with 3D printing and resins and molds. And they had some of their people there with actual Warframe outfits that they had designed for TennoCon. And even he was saying, oh, wow, that looks awesome. You know, so he and I were talking about 3D printing and making things, you know, whether it was making a gun or, or making a, an outfit or something like that. But it was so cool to be standing in line and people say stuff like, oh, do you mind if I take a picture of that? Without responding, I would simply take it off the holster, hand it to them and say, how about you take a picture with it? And their eyes would just go wide and say, are you serious? And in the back of my mind, I'm thinking, dude, this thing cost me maybe $13 in material to make. <laughs> just that whole thing of seeing people react to this. One of the guys who actually plays the characters voice-wise was also there, and I was getting his signature, and he sees the guns on my hips, and he's like, oh, you're the one who was posting those on Twitter. 
was like, yep. And, and you know, so again, said, I only printed them off. Shrubsy deserves the credit, but I handed it to him. And he fell back in his chair laughing, saying, this is so awesome. All because of this silly 3D printer giving me the opportunity to print these guns off. The whole day was like that. Seeing so many people reacting so positively with so many smiles over these plastic guns that are used in game. It was completely, totally worth it. But now it got to a point where I've seen this kind of stuff that Shrubsy does. I've started to look into Fusion 360. Now, many people probably know Tinkercad, which is like the really, really baby brother to it. Yeah. You can go in and you can design your own things and export them to files that you can 3D print and so forth. Well, if Tinkercad is like a rowboat, Fusion 360 is like a cruise liner. I mean, this thing is so ridiculously complex, if you want it to be, that you could have a complete device designed in this thing where all of the gears are linked together and the switches are linked together and you rotate one part and it will affect all of the other parts that are attached to it. And really complicated. But kudos to Autodesk because they're free online tutorials they are fantastic and the best part is fusion 360 they charge something like 600 dollars for it but you get 30 days to try it out and at the end of 30 days if you say look i'm just a hobbyist they'll say oh, okay it's free wow and that's it you, you have to re-register it once a year and verify that you're still a hobbyist but yeah you get it for free so now i'm looking into making my own because of everything that happened and then megan when I got back home, I posted photos of the developers and, and the community managers and so forth and their pictures and, and so forth, holding these things. And Megan responded saying, you know, thank you for bringing those. Everybody loved them. And then, of course, in a big hint, hint. So what do you have planned for next year? And there were two weapons that I was planning on making, one of which is a four-barrel shotgun. The other one is a flamethrower. In-game, in-game, folks, not real. <laughs> Settle down. If you want to have a, a flamethrower in real life, just talk to Elon Musk. <laughs> $500, if I remember rightly. But it's $500 for a flamethrower that's not a flamethrower. <laughs> <laughs> but one of those, that, that shotgun is called the Vacor Heck. Don't ask me about the names, but apparently the Vacor Heck is Megan's favorite weapon. So she just responded with, <gasps> Vacor Heck? So now that's my task for next year. But because of all of this, I've actually started to look at how to make it. And I've started to be able to think about how I can use either Tinkercad or Fusion 360 to make some of the parts to make this possible. And just from what I've already learned on Fusion 360 to take a 2D image, but be able to extract it in 3D space and then form it the way you want to, this is going to be a very doable thing for me. Because uh, the Vacor Heck, I mean, I could just start off with a couple of tubes of, uh, I don't know if you refer to them this way, but we call them PVC piping. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so I can start out with a couple of tubes of that to act as, you know, the, the barrel structure. And I'm already thinking of how to design the 3D parts to attach them together, to design some of the parts that come off of it. And my brain is just exploding with all of these ideas for how to make this gun come to be, all because I decided to plunge in, get a 3D printer, and print off a couple of gaming pistols. That's just unreal. I did not expect this. And now I am all excited for making this Vacor hack and then making you know any other kinds of, of weapons and so forth. 
or making quadcopter bodies because you can buy the parts for quadcopters and then print the bodies. Yeah. I never, ever, ever thought that getting this 3D printer, which I initially feared would be used for nothing but trinkets and stuff like that, would lead me to such an explosion to want to build things. It's fantastic. And because the prices of them have come down so much and the prices of filament is so cheap, folks, if you have any inclination of trying it, get a small one. You don't have to pay more than 200 bucks for one of these if you can do it. And just start building things with it. It is so much fun. Even if you're just looking for things to do and you can figure out on your own later how to make them. It's amazing. This has turned into a, an incredible creative tool and I cannot wait to use it. It's, I, I have no doubts whatsoever that as long as you buy the lenses, you can 3D print your own telescope. Make it look however you want it to look. Give it the focal length you want it to have, whatever, as long as you buy the lenses. That's the one drawback to 3D printing. You cannot 3D print absolutely clear optic material. No, because that, that's right? fine. Yeah. That's fine. Even though there are a couple of websites out there that say you can, you can't. But when it comes to creating a telescope to have the body that you want it to have, you can do that. Or, well, I want a way to attach this particular camera so that I could take photos with with my telescope. Well, you know, people have 3D printed their own attachments. I just thought of something, actually. It probably is possible to build a telescope from 3D printing, but one thing I will advise, don't try to do solar observations with it. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, that would be a bad thing. <laughs> Just, uh, yeah, I've got a couple it, of lenses in this pile of goo. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, point. <laughs> so the reason why um, I decided to do a space-related episode at this... Besides other than it's been a couple of months? Well, that <laughs> and the fact that, well, as we record this, yesterday was the 49th anniversary of the Apollo 11 launching so um i thought well yeah we need to do a space episode <laughs> yeah it's been weighing on my mind for a while i've been collecting stuff over the past few months mm -hmm. but, but we've had lots of different things that we've been needing to cover and i think yeah. that's really good that we can kind of spread it out and have all kinds of different things because well like we said when we first started this we didn't know where it was going to take us no and um it has kind of taken us all over the place with stuff. Mm -hmm. So, gonna have a short break, and when we come back, let's get all spacey. Hi, I'm Matt Damon. I play astronaut Mark Watney in The Martian. In the story, my character is accidentally stranded on Mars. Sending people to Mars and returning them safely is the challenge of a generation. The whole world held its breath when the Curiosity rover landed in 2012. The boot prints of astronauts will follow those rover tracks, thanks to innovations happening today. NASA's journey to Mars begins on the International Space Station, some 250 miles overhead, where we're learning how humans can thrive over long periods without gravity. Future round trips to Mars could take 500 days or longer. This year, NASA launched the first one-year mission to the International Space Station to help prepare for those future journeys. Here at home, people are working across the country on the new Orion spacecraft and Space Launch System rocket that will carry astronauts farther than ever before. When we invent new technologies for exploration, it benefits all of humanity. But more than that, 
The journey to Mars will forever change our history books, rewriting what we know about the red planet and expanding a human presence deeper into the solar system. Follow NASA's journey to Mars at www.nasa.gov. Space, the final frontier. Final because it wants to kill us. Sometimes we forget that. Start taking it all for granted. The suits, the ships, the little bubbles of safety as they protect us from the void. But the void is always waiting. This is TGP Nominal. So, welcome back, and we're talking all things space, as we mentioned just now, and one thing I wanted to point out, we have actually mentioned this, or Ross and I actually mentioned this on the TGP Extra episode, but I thought I'd better mention it again, because it is quite a special time in astronomy, coming up uh, at the end of the month. Now, Friday the 27th of July is set to be an awesome date for astronomy, with a number of astronomical events taking place during the evening and throughout the course of the night, including the appearance of a blood moon, three awesome planets to observe through a telescope, and a bright pass of the International Space Station if you're in the UK. Once the moon starts losing its red colour, and as the skies start getting a bit more dark the planets Jupiter, Saturn and Mars will become visible towards the south all of which are well worth observing if you have a telescope you should be able to see the cloud bands on Jupiter, the rings of Saturn and the polarised caps on Mars planet Mars reaches its opposition in the early hours of the 27th which is the time when it is directly opposite the sun as seen from earth and therefore at its brightest this means that the planet will be incredibly bright and makes for an excellent opportunity to observe mars as long as the current dust storm on mars clears Hmm. up yeah because at the moment it just looks like a blob and uh, people are like, what's wrong with my telescope? No, there's nothing wrong with your telescope, <laughs> okay? <laughs> there's just a huge dust storm there at the moment. Also on the 27th, the ISS will make in a bright pass over the UK. The space station will be passing by a bright star called Altair just seconds after 2300 hours. But note that the further south you are, the higher up in the sky you will have to look. It'll be better for you to use one of the many mobile apps to find out its exact path from where you actually are. It might make things a lot easier for you. If you don't own a telescope or decent binoculars, don't worry, there are many astronomical societies that will be having star parties and various stargazing events over that weekend. Um, I have to mention my local group, the Letchworth and District Astronomical Society, who will be hosting events at the Standalone Farm Observatory here in the Garden City. I'll include a link to this and many other of the events that are taking place in the show notes. Nice. Speaking of which, you made me check my uh, my ISS detector app, and uh, the ISS will be passing over, well, at least in visible range of my house, 65 degrees off the horizons. That's going to be up nice and high. Mag of minus four. It's going to be nice and bright. Yeah. Now, now is a really good time to be looking at the ISS, to be honest. It's going to be visible for six minutes, so starting at 1028, so all the kids will be awake for that. Hmm. Might be time to head outside. <laughs> 
Astronomers have found a whole new bunch of moons around Jupiter. So uh, 10 more moons have been discovered, uh, which brings this planet's total known number of moons to 79. Notice total known moons, so there could be even more. Mm -hmm. So astronomers at the Carnegie Institution for Science found them back in March 2017. That's when they first noticed them. They've got to make sure that they can repeat it. So they found uh, initially 12 moons using the Blanco 4-meter telescope in Chile, although they weren't even trying to. <laughs> they were trying to find other distant small objects that might be lurking out beyond Pluto, uh, but instead they found these new moons orbiting Jupiter. So they're really tiny to show how good this telescope is at finding these sorts of things. They range anywhere between less than a mile to two miles wide. They're tiny. And uh, two of them orbit Jupiter, moving in the same direction that the planet spins, which is kind of what we expect. But there are nine of them that rotate in the opposite direction, which is one of those things that's what? As the one astronomer said, uh, it's basically driving down the highway in the wrong direction. <laughs> that right there gives a, a very large amount of uh, intrigue as to what that could be all about. The thing is, Jupiter is huge, obviously, being the biggest planet in the solar system. There's a lot of space out there where asteroids or other objects can be orbiting around it. So because it also reflects so much light on its own, it can be really difficult to find these little tiny moons. But that's where this telescope comes in handy because it has the largest camera of any large class telescope that's out there. And, well, because it has such a, a bigger camera, it, it can obviously get more pixels and so forth, or at least a larger image. Uh, so it allows astronomers to cover a bigger area of space than previous telescopes were able to do. Plus, the camera is very well shaded, so that helps to reduce the glare from any light that Jupiter might scatter. So that makes it really, really good at finding all of these objects, and it found all of these new moons. But what's more interesting is the fact that so many of those other moons are going in the opposite direction, that now they're starting to think that there were actually three main bodies out there orbiting Jupiter, and that somehow they got broken apart. Whether they collided with each other or they broke apart on their own, they don't know, obviously. So that's the next big question, what caused those objects to break apart? I mean, it's possible that there were several head-on, well, you know, if you have one object heading in one direction, another one heading in the other direction, chances are pretty good that they're going to collide, especially when they're in the same general area mm -hmm. of distance from Jupiter. So it's very possible that what we're seeing are the result of the collision of multiple bodies heading in opposite directions. They've got a new mystery, but nonetheless, Jupiter now has 10 more known moons to add to its collection. Now, whilst we're on the topic of Jupiter's moons, a NASA probe that explored Jupiter's moon Europa flew through a giant plume of water vapour that erupted from the icy surface and reached 100 miles high, according to a fresh analysis of the spacecraft's data. The discovery has cemented the view among some scientists that the Jovian moon is one of the first four spotted by the Italian astronomer Galileo in 1610. And that is just amazing to think that somebody back then was actually seeing what they're seeing now. Mm -hmm. And it's the most promising place in the solar system to find alien life. If such geysers are common in Europa, NASA and the European Space Agency missions that are currently in the pipeline could fly through this plume 
and look for signs of life in the brine, which comes from a vast substances from the ocean containing twice as much water as all the oceans on Earth. NASA's Galileo spacecraft spent eight years in orbit around Jupiter and made its closest pass over Europa, a moon about the size of our own, on the 16th of December 1997. As the probe dropped between an altitude of 250 miles, its sensors twitched with an unexpected signal that scientists were unable to explain at the time. Now, in a new study, the researchers describe how they went back to the Galileo data after the grainy images beamed home from the Hubble Space Telescope in 2016 showed what appeared to be plumes of water blasting from Europa's surface. They found a sudden blast of water from the Jovian moon explained the Galileo probe's strange measurements. So we do all these, don't we? Uh, and that's the royal we. Uh, not, uh, <laughs> I had nothing to do with it. Um, I <laughs> um, yeah, we're, we're finding all these these pieces of data, and you know, you think, oh, that's it, they've done with. But they haven't done with it. It's oh, no. always being researched and looked at again, and all kinds of stuff going on with it. But it's really cool to think that this stuff is going on. And uh, I've, I've mentioned this before that one of my uh, favourite people in the science world, and, and yours as well, Dr. Alan Stern, he has been in talks with uh, the people at uh, JPL that are involved with the Europa Clipper, and I think he is going to be involved in that mission. Nice. So there is things going on with the Europa mission as we speak. But, uh, yeah, just watch this space because something interesting is going to happen. It's interesting you you mentioned that. You know, Enceladus might be giving it a run for its money. <laughs> that always comes up. <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, this is a new one that they've, they've done more analysis on the, the data that came back from Cassini. And, you know, that whole thing sounded like a really poorly written morning radio sketch. Just the way it led from yours to mine, and I hate that. No, folks, these articles, we, did, we didn't even have a chance to talk about this before we started doing this recording. So that just happened. Yeah. <laughs> but uh, no, because I, I had an article ready for that. So large, carbon-rich organic molecules have been spewing from the cracks, or seem to be spewing from the cracks of Enceladus based on data that they're still analyzing from Cassini. Now, this is where it might top what you said. According to this, that discovery means that Enceladus is the only place besides Earth known to satisfy all the requirements for life as we know it. If there is life there, it's definitely not the kind of, you know, Star Trek that we're looking at. I hope the name is correct here. Nozair Kawaja? I I'm, apologize completely if I butchered that. But a planetary scientist at the University of Heidelberg in Germany said... We cannot decide whether the origin of this complex material is biotic or not, but there is astrobiological potential. I mean, Enceladus obviously has an icy crust, but underneath that is an ocean that sits above a rocky core. Hello, like Earth. And it's sending out these plumes of icy vapor hundreds of miles above the surface from the ocean as they break through the crack. Well, Cassini went through one of those plumes and captured samples on October 28th of 2015, and after analyzing it, it found that those discovered molecules have masses over 200 atomic mass units and are classified as macromolecules, and they're apparently complex organic molecules. So, according to this, uh, this is the first evidence of large organic molecules from any 
extraterrestrial aquatic world, and they can be generated only by an equally complex chemical process. These molecules also don't dissolve in water, which means that as those molecules transport to the surface, they can form an organic film. And then from there, a crack forms, and then the, the material gets ejected into space. So what we know about it is that it has hydrothermal vents like we do here. And we know that there are lots of different organisms. Uh, have you ever heard of tube worms? Yeah. Okay. Well, tube worms thrive near these hydrothermal vents deep in the ocean. Mm -hmm. And now, granted, they're they're going to be, they're probably one of the more complex kind. So I doubt that those are the kinds that we'd, we'd find. We'd probably find more like single-celled organisms, maybe you know, multi-cell, but nothing as complex as a tube worm. But I mean, th it's amazing when you think that all of the criteria that we've at least determined as necessary for life as we know it can now be found on Enceladus based on that one Cassini fly-through. Yeah. So and now we have two moons yeah. that could possibly be supporting some kind of life. Two different planets, two different moons. <laughs> yeah. Wow. Sorry, Pluto's still not a moon. It's all planet. I was in such a rush to bust your chops that I screwed it up. Oh, well. This is where you put the quack, quack, oops. <laughs> Well, many of us can only dream about space travel. 17-year-old astronaut trainee Alicia Carson is making it a reality. The ambitious Louisiana-based teenager has her heart set on the stars ever since she was a little girl. At three years old, she told her dad, Daddy, I want to be an astronaut and to be one of the people that goes to Mars. Staying true to her word, she's currently undergoing rigorous training with NASA to become part of the first human mission to Mars in the year 2033. Maybe. I'm not saying that she's not going to be part of it. I'm just saying 2033, mm -hmm. maybe. <laughs> yep. No, I understand. Uh, among a long list of accomplishments, she is the youngest person to ever graduate from the Advanced Space Academy. She's also the first person in the world to have completed all three NASA space camps. That's United States, Canada, and Turkey. I didn't even know there wow. was, was one in Turkey. Neither did I. Um, furthermore, she's the first and only person to complete the NASA passport program, having visited all 14 of the NASA visitor centers located in nine years. US states. In January 2013, she was invited to join the NASA TV's MER10 panel in Washington, D.C. to discuss future missions to Mars. She was later chosen as one of the seven ambassadors for the Mars One, which is a, a mission to establish the first human settlement on the Red Planet in 2033. In October 2016, she graduated from the Advanced Possum Academy, making her the youngest person to be officially certified to go into outer space. Astonishingly, she still managed to make time for her traditional education. She's currently taking all of her school subjects in four languages. What? English, Chinese, French and Spanish. She explains the biggest challenge is time and getting everything done at such a young age while still attending high school. Continuing to train at a young age will also further difficulties for me, but I have done great with this so far, and when she's not training or studying, she's also a public speaker. She aims to encourage other younger people to pursue their life goals, saying, always follow your dream and don't let anyone take it from you. Wow. As much as you feel thrilled for her that she's able to do all that, you also feel really humbled. 
I mean, all of her studies in four different languages. That's amazing. I have trouble studying in just one. But she has done so much, and she's only 17. No wonder she's... And then she's... We, we get to look back at what we've done with our lives and say, yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but we're kind of doing our little part towards it now. Oh, yeah. <laughs> we can't all be geniuses. Some of us have to have a lot of time to mess around with 3D printing. <laughs> Put a post up about her in the Facebook page for TGP Nominal. And um, well, I thought, well, not everybody is subscribed to our page. You should do, by the way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so I thought, better mention her because she is so amazing. Oh, absolutely. She, she's, <laughs> she needs to be made known in this world for sure. Mm-hmm. I mean, if she does actually make it to be one of the first people on Mars, then it's everything that she'd planned for from a young age mm-hmm. and uh, well worthy of, of getting there. The James Webb Space Telescope has been pushed back to 2021. NASA set up an independent review board to analyze the project, and there, there's good and bad news. You know, the good news is that the project should continue. The bad news is that there have been a lot of problems so far, and so they've set a new launch date to 2021. I have it here somewhere with the exact one. The first issue is that it's gone way over budget. Hello, I guess that's nothing to be really surprised about. That's the kind of thing that happens with things like this. But the problem is they're actually having problems testing it because nuts and bolts and washers are falling off during the vibration tests. So, unfortunately, uh, anomalies in these acoustic tests, as they refer to them, are the primary reason. Right now, Northrop Grumman believes that they are from the sun shield, but they need more time to confirm this and to develop ways to, well, stop it from happening. The last thing that you want is four screws to come loose during launch. Mm-hmm. So uh, the report also notes that even small human errors can result in long delays. I mean, they didn't specify what they mean by that, but regardless, the current launch date could slip again. But the problem is that there are other telescopes that are currently in the planning phase that they can't really start to work on until the James Webb gets up there. So that is obviously a problem. And this is a major issue because the James Webb telescope is going to be out much farther than Hubble. So they will not be able to get anyone out there to be able to repair it if there's a problem. So they have to get this right in the first shot. Uh, Plus, its equipment is also way more sensitive than Hubble's. So even if there's just a slight problem with orientation or focus, it's going to have a really, really big impact on the project. That's the problem. Uh, And of course, it's gone past budget. It was supposed to be capped at, uh, let me see here. It was supposed to cost between $1 billion and $3.5 billion. Now it's possible that it could exceed $8.8 billion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and unfortunately this means that other missions, not just telescope-related, but other missions are now being scrutinized possibly because of budget issues and so forth. One of them being the Wide Field Infrared Survey Telescope, which is meant to look for dark matter, uh, still in its development phase, but it's supposed to launch in the mid-2020s. Now, that could be at risk because of the budget overruns for the uh, James Webb Telescope, but there are still other plans going through. But again, these other plans, they because NASA sets their project on a 10-year scale, and right now they're coming up to the next decade for their projects. 
and they need to resolve the James Webb telescope before they can really put these other projects into use or, or into serious consideration. So, yeah, there, there are a lot of issues going on here. So, yeah, unfortunately, that's the situation with the James Webb telescope. So right now it's pushed back to 2021. It could be pushed back even farther. Let's hope not. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of that going on at the moment because um, I've been reading uh, an article that uh, that was translated from Russian, actually. So it's um, I don't know if you remember that the the Federation spacecraft that the uh, the Russians were coming out with to replace the the, the Soyuz capsules mm-hmm. that's been delayed <laughs> as well from 2022 to 2025 to meet the. <laughs> well, it, this is a bad translation, I think. Redo plans, they calling them, <laughs> for the Angara booster, according to two sources in the space and rocket industry. The first unmanned test flight of the Federation was to take place in 2022 with an unmanned mission to the ISS in 2023 and finally a manned flight in 2024. At present, plans to return the manned missions to the Angara A5 booster instead of the Soyuz 5 have prompted discussions on the possibility of delaying the Federation's first flight to 2025. The discussions were confirmed by a company source at the RKK Inertia, uh, who are the developer of the new spacecraft. Uh, Inertia's press service did not comment on the story, and Roscosmos also offered no comment. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. That's normally yeah. what happens. Yeah, there seems to be a lot of things at the moment being pushed back, and not all related stuff. As well, as you heard there, that that's something that's completely not related to the James Webb Space Telescope, and um, something that needs to be done but uh, can't continue. So that means that the old workhorse, the the Soyuz, will be continuing for a few more years yet. Right, and the worst part is that I mean, fine, delay the James Webb as long as needed to to make sure that it's going to be good for, for, for launch. That means that right now we've still got the Hubble, mm-hmm. and the Hubble isn't in the best condition either. No. So if the Hubble goes up before the James Webb telescope goes up, we've basically not going to have any kind of orbital telescope. As it stands, we've got no way of going back up there to do any more repairs if there's a problem. Nope. Get the Dream Chaser on it. Get the Dream Chaser on it. Yeah, really? You'd think that'd be perfect for something like this. I mean, I understand space is hard. I get it. But uh, from a, 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 an observer's perspective, it's like, oh, come on, guys. You're doing such cool stuff. It, it's so easy to sit back and what's the phrase? Armchair referee? Yeah. The reality is that space is hard and these things happen. You know, what can you do? But, I'll, hey, you know, on the plus side, we've got some good news regarding satellites, you know, and, and other things like that. Because the test, the uh, Transitioning Exoplanet Survey Satellite, which launched on April 18th, it's currently undergoing commission tests, and NASA thinks that it should be ready to go and start looking for other exoplanets by the end of this month. Cool. So, they, I mean, they originally were hoping that it would be done by mid-June, but the, everything's still looking good. They expect it to begin doing science work by the end of July. Now, TESS is going to be the replacement for Kepler. Mm-hmm. And it's basically going to do the exact same methodology that Kepler did, which is it's going to look at 
several hundred thousand stars in the area and look for brightness dips along the planet just as you know for when a, a, an orbiting body makes the light dim it's basically going to be kepler 2.0 which is a good thing because the kepler has entered hibernation mode because it's almost out of fuel that thing's been going strong since 2009 but now the fuel tank is running so low they've put it into hibernation mode so that they can wait for it to download its data because its data comes down through the deep space network but the deep space network you have to schedule time to be because it's so busy you have to schedule time for it to receive data from any particular project so they have to wait until august to be able to send the data back so right now kepler is basically asleep waiting to be awoken so that it can send its data back to us unfortunately that that's you know we, we've got limited amounts of fuel and that's a problem until we can come up with some other way of propelling these without actual propellants so we've gotten so much good stuff from the kepler kepler has confirmed or, or it has detected what have been confirmed as 2650 exoplanets that's a heck of a lot of planets out there and it doesn't mean that anything that you know containing life or so forth but just the fact that they've been found you know there are definitely other planets out there so kepler has done an amazing job and unfortunately it's running out of fuel so it's they're going to keep going as long as they can until fuel is absolutely gone so who knows how long that could be but at least now we know that tess is coming on board to replace it so for a time we might even have both of them checking out uh, exoplanets cool now do you remember the uh, the parker solar probe Sounds familiar. Refresh my memory. Uh, it's the one that's going to go up to the sun. Basically, it will fly close to the sun's surface than any other spacecraft. Ah, yes, uh, yes, facing yes, yes, yes. The heat and uh, radiation conditions, ultimately mm-hmm. providing humanity with the first ever samples of a star's corona. Now, it was due to fly on uh, July the 31st. It has been delayed slightly. Nothing like the James Webb. It's been delayed to the 4th of August because they're doing some software testing on it. And it will launch on a United Launch Alliance Delta V heavy rocket from the Space Launch Complex 37 on Cape Canaveral's Air Force Station in Florida. We're both involved with this one. When I say involved, we got the opportunity to send our details in to a program that they, they've been running, and our names will be on this probe and getting fried. And uh, we've, <laughs> <laughs> we, we've got a, a little certificate to say that uh, we're involved along the way. So. I hope that wasn't a uh, hamburger joke. <laughs> That there's going to be a fried burger up there. <laughs> uh-huh. Don't think I don't know how to identify those kinds of comments. I've only had to live with them my whole life. <laughs> but, yeah, oh. it's it's something that uh, we try to do We when we hear about these little projects that are there to maybe have a, a tiny little part of us on these different missions then we, we do try and get involved as much as we can <laughs> and plus it's just it's fun and it lets NASA know hey the, the public likes this stuff mm-hmm. definitely definitely so it's good for everyone so whilst we're on the subject of launches do you remember Copenhagen suborbitals yes now they've just released a communication uh, about their Nexo 2 mission 
Uh, it was going to fly last year, but they needed to do some testing and stuff, and now it's ready. It has taken a lot of coordination and a lot of work, but we are now finally able to announce the 2018 launch window for the Nexo 2 rocket. The launch will take place from the ESD-139 in the Baltic Sea, 22 kilometers off the coast of the Danish island called Bornholm. So they always launch their rockets from a floating platform. Um, the launch windows are, the, the first attempt is on July the 28th and 29th. The second is the 4th and 5th of August. And the third attempt is the 11th and 12th of August. The go-no-go no go sequence starts three days before each window where they will evaluate the weather forecast. What you've got to bear in mind is this is in Scandinavia and... Uh, Weather can be a bit hit and miss. <laughs> yeah. They will send out information regularly as the first launch window approaches. Updates will be announced on uh, www.copsub.com. I'll put a link to that in the show notes. The test will be transmitted live on YouTube and the live stream link will be available on Mission Day and published on the website. So, um, yeah, you'll be able to see these test launches of the Nexo 2 mission which is Sweet. which is awesome considering these guys I don't want to call them amateurs because these guys know what they're doing but they don't work for any agency or any corporation these guys do it at the weekend these guys are kind of like hobbyists but are on steroids if you know what I mean these these guys mm-hmm. these are big big quite big rockets for yeah. somebody just to do at the weekend I mean, these mm-hmm. guys have got other jobs as well. And uh, the fantastic work they put into um, these missions. And eventually, they do intend to put somebody into space on one yeah, of their you, rockets. Yeah, you can't do that with small rockets. No. <laughs> so, no, good for them. I, these are the kind of people that make me wish that my brain could comprehend the math behind doing that. Mm-hmm. I look at any, you know, orbital dynamics and all that stuff, and my brain just said, no, I'm done. And I am actually in touch with the guys at, at Copenhagen Suborbitals, and I'm just cool. trying to arrange a time for them to actually come onto Skype and actually come on the show. Oh, uh, that would be awesome. It would be absolutely amazing, but it's going to be after these launches. Uh, yeah, oh, that makes sense. <laughs> they've got a lot on at the moment. So once they've got that clear... Uh, we'll try and make arrangements for someone from Copenhagen Suborbitals to come on the show and chat with us about what they do. Nice. I, I like that theirs is launching from a platform out in the ocean. That right there must have its own set of uh, interesting algorithms. Well, I mean, maybe not. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm making it out to be more complicated than it is. But uh, I guess once it gets its trajectory, then it knows how to adjust itself. Mm-hmm. But still, just the thought of, yeah, we're going to launch this from uh, the ocean. And, and the fact is that they've got all these support vessels and all this kind of stuff. Mm-hmm. It's not a small exercise. It's, it's a big no. exercise. And uh, they are all named after previous space-related stuff. I think one of, their, yeah. one of their support vessels is called Sputnik, I think, mm-hmm. if I remember rightly. So, yeah. Why not? That is pretty good. And that, that is really smart, too, because you think about... Um, like if there's a problem and they launch from land mm-hmm. and something happens, there's a, you know, a real risk of injury. Well, as it says, it's, it's 22 kilometers away from any coastline. Right. Um, and it's in the middle of the Baltic Sea, which is quite, it's quite a big area. So 
yeah, yeah. so if there's any problem really don't well the people at risk would be anybody on who could be in range on the uh, support ships mm-hmm. but otherwise that's that's a pretty impressive place to do that yeah and you know stability issues and so well no more power to them Speaking of launch areas, a uh, launch area that was a little bit of history has been demolished. Cape Canaveral's LC-17 has been torn down. Uh, That's where most of the Delta II rockets were launched from. So Launch Complex 17, as it was designated, was built in December of 1956 to accommodate tests of the Thor missile. So the first launch took place on January 26th of 1957. But, you know, launches kept going on. The last launch, well, let's see, well, Delta II launches, let's start there, started in December 1989. And I'm sure that you know probably its most famous launch because it was the launch from LC-17A when uh, it, it was a Block 2R global positioning satellite. 13 seconds into the flight, the rocket exploded. I'm sure you've seen the video of that. Yeah, yeah. And uh, it sent 220 tons of debris within a kilometer of the launch pad. I mean, it was destroying cars in the parking lot. Uh, It's a spectacular video to watch. Fortunately, no one was injured. That was the amazing part. But, uh, yeah, so that is being torn down because it's going to be helping with the upcoming lunar cargo transport and landing by soft touchdown <sighs> catalyst ah uh, yes yeah. so it, it's it's moon express they are going to be taking up residency at the pad and it's all about their, their landing capabilities for future moon launches so it's not going to be retired completely it's just taking on a new purpose but having those two launch towers there Obviously, there are no more need. So, a little bit of history has been torn down, but uh, yeah. what can you do? Got to progress. Yeah. When one thing goes, another thing comes along. Mm-hmm. And um, yeah, as you say, that's progress. So, it's it's one of them things. But um, yeah. I keep thinking about how, how Richard Vobes keeps commenting about tearing down the old buildings just to put in a new one when the old building was fine. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I just I keep thinking back to that when it's like, well, did you really need to tear it down? Eh, you know, not my call though. UK engineers will design a robot that can retrieve rock samples on Mars so that they can be sent back to Earth for study. The European Space Agency is issuing contracts to the industry for what will be a complex joint undertaking with the US. The aerospace giant Airbus will scope the concepts for a surface, get this, fetch rover, <laughs> at its Stevenage plant, which is um, about seven miles away from where I'm sitting. <laughs> <laughs> it's quite literally on our doorstep. 
ESA and NASA are expected to send the sample return equipment to the Red Planet in 2026. It'll be a relatively small rover at about 130 kilograms, but the requirements are very demanding, said Ben Boys, who is leading the feasibility team at Airbus. The vehicle will have to cover a large distance using a high degree of autonomy, planning its own path ahead day after day, he told BBC News. ESA and NASA signed a letter of intent in April committing themselves to bringing back pieces of Martian rock and soil to Earth before the end of the next decade. It'll be a daring venture that will be done in stages and take several years to complete. NASA will send up a rover to Mars in 2020. This will search for interesting materials, drilling and scooping them from the surface and catching them in in containers. These will be dropped at various depot points. There could be up to 30 plus of these pen-sized tubes waiting for a pickup. In 2026, the recovery mission will be launched. The Americans will land an ascent vehicle, essentially a rocket, on Mars together with the European Fetch rover... (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that gets me that bit. The the latter <laughs> will trundle off and find and gather up the canisters, delivering them back to the rocket. Within roughly 150 days, the space agencies want the canisters lifted off Mars by the ascent vehicle. It will rendezvous with a European orbiter that will take charge of the samples and carry them back to Earth. A descent capsule that will bring down the precious cargo somewhere over the United States. Now, this is how it should work really, when you think about it. Mm-hmm. America has been very successful with Mars rovers, as we, we know. The European Space Agency has been very successful in things that are flying around Mars. That's been proven that they can do. Work together, combine the talents that both agencies have got. We've got a mission that should work. That's the way it should work. Ascent vehicle. Oh, God. <laughs> Just call it a rocket, please. <laughs> I just love the fetch rover. <laughs> fetch, yeah. I bet that uh, when it comes to a mission patch, it's going to have a dog on it. It's got to. <laughs> it's got to. I mean, can they paint it, like, white with black spots? <laughs> That'd be cool. <laughs> little, little, little red collar around its neck. Yeah. Oh, <laughs> uh, who said you can't have a sense of humor in these sorts of things? <laughs> Once again, the European Space Agency not using acronyms. Amazing on that one, isn't it? Although, you know, as, lo- as long as we're talking about that, and you know my dislike for the acronyms, I know you've seen this, but I don't know how many people have seen a, a May 2010 memo from Elon Musk, who basically said that the title of this memo was Acronyms Seriously Suck. Now, I'll let you take the acronym for that phrase and just let it go. (laughs) But uh, uh, let me just read the whole thing because I love it. He says, there's a creeping tendency to use made-up acronyms at SpaceX. Excessive use of made-up acronyms is a significant impediment to communication, and keeping communication good is, as we grow is incredibly important. Individually, a few acronyms here and there may not seem so bad. But if a thousand people are making these up, over time the result will be a huge glossary that we have to issue to new employees. No one can actually remember all of these acronyms, and people don't want to seem dumb in a meeting, so they just sit there in ignorance. This is particularly tough on new employees. That needs to stop immediately, or I will take drastic action. I have given enough warning over the years. Unless an acronym is approved by me, 
it should not enter the SpaceX glossary. If there is an existing acronym that cannot be reasonably justified, it should be eliminated as I have requested in the past. For example, there should not be HTS, horizontal test stand, or VTS, vertical test stand, designations for test stands. Those are particularly dumb as they contain unnecessary words. A stand at our test site is obviously a test stand. VTS 3 is four syllables compared with tripod, which is two. So the bloody acronym version actually takes longer to say than the name. The key test for an, he, he says that, he says bloody acronym. I, isn't that a, actually a swear word over there? Well, it, or just it's, not nice? It's, just, it's a curse word, but it's nothing major. Okay, fine. The key test for an acronym is to ask whether it helps or hurts communication. An acronym that most engineers outside of SpaceX already know, such as GUI, is fine to use. It is also okay to make up a few acronyms slash contractions every now and then, assuming I have approved them. For example, MVAC and M9 instead of Merlin 1C vacuum or Merlin 1C sea level, but those need to be kept to a minimum. NASA, are you listening to this? Seriously, you need to follow this memo. I'm Make at, things a lot easier on people, including people who do podcasts that deal with NASA items. I've actually got a, a piece that's uh, on a NASA thing that um, I'm going to use in a, a, a sweeper or something where a girl actually asked one of these uh, NASA experts. How many acronyms do you have to learn? TMTC. Ugh. <laughs> <laughs> Regardless of what Elon Musk has been doing as of late, which is highly questionable if you've been following his Twitter feed, I like this idea. <laughs> I like this. Or would that be IT or uh, yeah, ITT? No, ILT. See, see, even something like that. I'm so sick of acronyms, I can't even get that one right. <laughs> Jeez. Now I don't know if you you saw this on the ISS recently. There's been a uh, a UK-led project to showcase methods to tackle space junk, and it's just been pushed out of the uh, International Space Station. The removed debris satellite was ejected uh, a short time ago. Uh, with the help of a robotic arm. The 100-kilogram craft built in Guildford has a net and a harpoon. It makes it sound like some kind of gladiator-type thing. <laughs> with a net and a trident, you know? It's yeah. that kind of thing. These are just two of the multiple ideas that are, are being currently considered to snare rogue hardware. There are 7,500 tonnes of this, which is circling the planet. This material, old rocket parts and broken fragments of spacecraft, poses a collision hazard to operational satellites that deliver important services such as telecommunications. The £13 million, pound, that's pound sterling, not weight removed debris spacecraft was taken to the ISS in April and stored on board ahead of its recent release. The spacecraft was pushed out of the airlock where the robotic arm then picked it up and gave it a gentle nudge away from the uh, lab. In the process, the removed debris became the largest satellite to ever be deployed from the International Space Station. The ground controllers at Guildford were hoping to pick up a signal from the spacecraft a couple of hours later as it passed over the UK. In the first month to a month and a half, we will spend our time checking the health of the satellite, said the principal investigator from the Surrey Space Centre at the University of Surrey. Once we know that all the systems are behaving properly, then we will begin our experiments. The removed debris carries its own junk to CubeSats that it will eject 
and then track. For one of these, the mother satellite will demonstrate the laser ranging, or the LiDAR, and the uh, <laughs> the camera technology needed to monitor the, and characterise the debris in orbit. For the other CubeSat, it will actually try and snare the object with a net. So basically, they're not going to try it on any of the stuff that's out in space already. They're going to try and capture something that they're going to launch from it in the first place. So if it fails, there's more junk in space. <laughs> yeah. There will also be a demonstration of a small harpoon. For this, the removed debris satellite will extend a boom with a uh, target on the end. A sharp projectile will then be fired in at a plate to learn about how such devices move and impact to a surface in microgravity. I'm going to put a picture of the actual harpoon in the show notes. It is a very sharp tool, but it needs to be. I mean, if you're going to be penetrating in metal, then it needs to be quite sharp but yeah. Um, yeah it'd be interesting to see if that works that would be there's so many things that it'd be neat to see that that they have planned I'd love to see that uh, was it like a, a plane to fly over Venus um, a submarine to swim in uh, I want to say oh, I can't remember which one of the Saturn moons supposed to design a, a submarine that it could actually go inside the water and, and transmit data back yeah that sounds like Enceladus again, actually. It does. That's why I'm wondering if that's it. That does seem the one that they're, they're focusing on. But, yeah, it's nice to see all this stuff going on. Have you heard of Mr. Steven? Yes. <laughs> that's, like, way back in the file archives. Now, Mr. Steven is SpaceX's fairing recovery vessel. And it's basically a ship with a huge net on it. <laughs> mm-hmm. Okay, right. So far, it has failed to capture any fairings. But SpaceX technicians have recently completed installation of Mr. Stevens' new and dramatically larger arms, as well as eight giant struts. All that remains to be installed is the upgraded net, said by uh, Elon Musk to be four times the area of its predecessor, which will hopefully see its first operational debut with a fairing recovery attempt after the Iridium 7 Falcon 9 mission on the 25th of July. While it's difficult to estimate from photos alone, it appears that Mr. Stevens' new arms are a minimum of roughly 65 metres squared, assuming a square aspect ratio. In other words, the vessel's next and newest net could have an area as large as... 3,600 square metres. For a comparison, the massive autonomous spaceport drone ships that SpaceX often recovers its Falcon 9 and heavy boosters on board have a usable landing area of roughly 45,000 square feet, which is uh, a little more than 10% larger of Mm -hmm. the Mr. Stevens' new net. So that shows you the size of this thing that's trying to capture the fairings with these new vast arms and struts and soon the net spacex is likely to be as close as they have ever been before to catching a falcon 9 fairing an achievement that would likely allow the company to begin reusing the large carbon fiber composite shrouds almost immediately uh, SpaceX appear to have been attaching recovery hardware to both fairing halves in in the West Coast attempts. It remains to be seen whether Mr. Stevens' new claw apparatus 
will be able to catch both halves of the fairings because that seems it's going to be if I mean if they separate and go in two different directions mm-hmm. how are you going to capture them both right right I mean hey we we didn't know if they'd be able to to land a rocket on a, a floating platform mm-hmm. but I mean granted this is this is a, a piece of debris I don't want to call it debris but you know in free fall mm-hmm. so it's not like it's being powered for and guiding but that still doesn't seem like a really big net and I'm I can't find anything regarding what they think the average speed is when it you know when it finally gets down to sea level to catch it but that net I, I don't know I, just what little I know about how nets work and and seeing them in use and other things you know the net needs to drop down a lot to to reverse that inertia mm-hmm. and it doesn't look like the net is really all that far off the deck of the ship that's what they've done with these new arms um they've made it a lot higher so yeah uh, but th- okay, yeah but still it's just i guess the picture that i'm looking at is probably an artist's conception and it just looks like the net isn't really all that high in order to make it as as wide as possible. But And there's still a section of the ship that's uncovered. So it could still smash into the bridge of the ship if this picture is accurate. <laughs> I mean, more power to them. So I guess all they can really do is get it in the general area and see if they can catch it. Even if they can only catch a portion of them. Mm. That's still going to be significant cost savings. I mean, I mean, let's face it. Once that stuff hits the salt water, it's going to start to corrode the material. And if there's any pipe work inside of it, it it's it won't be a good thing. I mean, so, I'm, I'm thinking obviously they're going to be just symmetrically the same. So you, you could right. put, uh, you know, if you had a left side one and another left side one, you could put them together. That's what up. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You could, yeah, you could definitely put a fleet of them together. So at least increase the coverage. But it says here about the recovery hardware, so whether that means it's got something on it, I'm assuming that's just a a, a tracking thing Mm -hmm. of some description. I wouldn't have thought it'd be any kind of jet or something for guidance or something. I I, I think it's probably just some kind of tracking device on it. So it'll be interesting to see what they they manage to do. I have got an updated photograph of of it. It is pretty big. Oh, no, there's no question it's big. But um, I'm curious as to what the size of the fairing is in relation to that net. They're not that big, the fairings, well, in the, the, no. whole, the whole scope of things, but they're, mm-hmm. they're still pretty damn big. But um, The real question is, where does the name Mr. Stephen come from? I have been looking into that, and I <laughs> cannot find where it's come from. Yeah, I'm not the only one. <laughs> and the only thing I can find is Elon Musk saying it's purely random. It could be. But I, I've never known Elon Musk to do anything purely random. There's always something cryptic involved in it. Um, but I've, I've been looking on some forums and there's some people up in arms saying, it's called Mr. Stevens, but why are you calling it a she? Because it's a ship and they've always been yeah. female. So why call it Mr. Stevens? <sighs> Take for ex- granted, this is science fiction, but in Star Trek, Lieutenant Savick was referred to as Mr. Savick. Mm-hmm. But that's always to do with the, the nautical stuff mm-hmm. back in the day. Well, it's a ship, so... It could very well be female. Huh? So yeah, there's some people moaning about it. Yeah, but. I mean this is this is the internet. People complain about anything, especially you know Star Wars movies. We're not mm. going to go there. 
Yeah, not on this episode anyway. No, no. <laughs> you probably heard it from my, my last episode then? Uh, yeah. Star Wars uh, fans, quote-unquote fans? Mm-hmm. Oh, yeah. I've, I've saved that material. We can talk about that in the next show. Yeah, that that's something I'd, I've, I'd also like to try and bring Liz in to uh, <laughs> as well. So. Oh, that'll be interesting. <laughs> <laughs> the Rosetta Image Archive is now complete. All of the high-resolution images and other data uh, that Rosetta was able to compile during its orbit around Comet 67P are now available on ESA's archive, including the images of Finding Philae, as well as the, the images from its final descent to the comet's surface. So the images were delivered by the OSIRIS camera team uh, in May and have now been processed, and they're available in both the archive image browser as well as the Planetary Science Archive. So the difference between the two is that the archive image browser uh, hosts images captured by the uh, navigation camera on board, whereas the Planetary Science Archive contains publicly available data from all of the instruments that were on board Rosetta. So the final batch of high-resolution image, high images covers the period from late July 2016 to the end of the mission uh, of on. 30 September 2016 uh, and that brings the total count of images to 100,000 across its 12 year journey and that includes the flybys of Earth, Mars and the two asteroids so 100,000 high resolution images that you can look through and some of those are from images that were obtained when it was just 2 kilometers above the surface of the comet that's a heck of a lot of material I can only imagine how many... I'll, I'll even go into the possible terabyte range <laughs> to download all of that. Yeah. The other thing that they have with this is that it's released... All of the material is being released under Creative Commons license. Now, that doesn't necessarily mean anything, but it does mean that just for the average Joe, you can take it and use it whatever you want. You know, they, they might have... There are various degrees of Creative Commons licenses. So some say, hey, you could do whatever the heck you want with it. Others say, well, you can use it for personal stuff, but not business. So, you know, you can't make derivative works. You can make derivative works. So I'm not sure what specific one they're falling under. But still, it means that if you're just the average Joe like us, have at it. Go for it. I'd imagine it would be the same as the one they produce for NASA, which basically says you can pretty much do what you want with it as long as it doesn't bring NASA into disrepute. Right. Does NASA also require permission to use it for commercial purposes? I think anyone can pretty much use it but as i say as long as it doesn't make nasa look stupid uh right they don't care right that's fair that's did you see speaking of which now granted this is several months old but someone took several of the images as it was right above the comet and put them together to make it look like it's like it was snowing on the comet did you see that video oh uh, yeah i think i did yeah that is amazing just to think that, yes, that is the comet, but then to see the fragments coming off. And it might not be snow. It could be whatever debris there. Mm -hmm. But it, it looks like it was snowing on the comet. That was so cool. Yeah, they were talking about a lot of that kind of stuff at the um, at the Space Rocks. Matt Taylor was there, who was the, the lead scientist for the Rosetta mission. I won't go into that too much because I'm obviously going to be bringing some of that to you at a later date. Um, but it was so cool meeting him. I mean, he's, he's been uh, a legend on this show for a while because oh, yeah. of 
well, not only the work he's done w- with the Rosetta mission, but the fact that he's part of the 501st as well. I mean, it's, you know, scientist during the week, stormtrooper weekends. I mean, wow. <laughs> <laughs> and he's a really nice guy too. Engineers in Scotland and the Ukraine, there's a couple of countries you wouldn't see normally together, <laughs> have begun testing a rocket that will eat itself. What? It lifts satellites into orbit by burning its own body as fuel. Okay. Rocketry is a wasteful business. Uh, A rocket uses most of its energy lifting its own weight into space. Its payload is typically just a fraction of that. But a team from the University of Glasgow and the, here we go, Oles Honchar-Nipiro National University in the Ukraine have created a rocket engine to change all that. It burns a solid propellant rod that doubles as the rocket body itself. The rigid tube of... um, polyethylene fuel encloses a core of powered oxidizer. This propellant rod is forced into the rocket kit engine where the two components are separated, vaporized uh, and burned to create a thrust. Writing in the Journal of Spacecraft and Rockets, the team call it autotharge, uh, meaning that it's something that'll eat itself. Typically, a solid rocket fuel behaves much like a firework. Once the blue touch paper has uh, metaphorically been lit you have little option but to stand clear and watch it go the new design adds a significant feature by varying the speed at which the fuel rod is forced into the engine the thrust can be varied as in a liquid fueled rocket being able to throttle a rocket means its thrust can be reduced when reaching the max q or the the spell of maximum aerodynamic pressure when rising through the atmosphere and throttled back up again as the air thins. Throttling thrust means a payload can be more precisely placed into orbit. Dr Patrick Harkness, senior lecturer at the University of Glasgow School of Engineering, says that the design means that the rocket will get shorter as it climbs higher. During the ascent, the engine will work its way up along the body of the rocket, consuming it. So by the end of the flight, only the payload, the empty engine, enters space. That means we put less debris up there. It would also be cheaper than existing rockets, and because the design can be scaled down for smaller payloads, it would be ideal for lifting smaller satellites of a kind which are already being built in Scotland in their dozens. That's actually pretty freaking brilliant. <laughs> I that, 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 Yeah. <laughs> Never even thought of that sort of thing. Just change the way that rocketry works. So that also means it gets lighter as it goes higher, so the thrust is becoming more efficient. Mm-hmm. Wow. That's pretty cool. That That's just one of those mind-blowing, never-thought-of-that moments. <laughs> it seems quite simple. Yeah. It's probably it's like, well, not we've got simple. this problem with all the parts coming back down and space junk and blah, blah, blah. So do it so that there's no space junk. <laughs> oh wow! <laughs> it's what I don't know what it is with Scotland. Lately, there's a lot of stuff happening with Scotland, but there's always been with with Scotland engineers. Mm-hmm. We've only got to look at Star Trek, but exactly <laughs> that was his excuse for going to being a Scottish guy. Yeah, because of the engineers of the past. Some mm-hmm. of the greatest inventions have come from Scotland. <laughs> it's pretty amazing. That is very cool. 
I hope they get that to work. That'd yeah. be really cool to I'd, see. I'd love to see that, yeah. Mm-hmm. Going back to Scotland, <laughs> a remote boggy stretch of land on the north coast of Scotland is set to become the UK's first spaceport. Now, people out there from Scotland, you're going to have to forgive me on the pronunciation of this because I have no idea how to pronounce it. <laughs> um, I'm going to go with Amahorn. Amahorn. It's it's A apostrophe M H O I N E. Amahorn Peninsula in Sutherland has been chosen to be the most suitable place from which to launch rockets vertically to put satellites into orbit. The UK Space Agency is giving Highlands and Islands Enterprises £2.5 million towards the development of the facility. They will work closely with a consortium that includes the American aerospace giant Lockheed Martin. The goal will be to have launches from there as early as possible in the 2020s. Lockheed wants to bring the Electron rocket to Scotland, you know, Mm. the, the one that's currently being launched from New Zealand. The British version of the rocket will have a propulsion unit and a satellite dispenser developed and built at Ampthill in Bedfordshire and Harwell in Oxfordshire and also in Reading. Patrick Wood is Lockheed Martin's senior executive in the UK and he said, as a country, we've not invested in launches since 1971 with the Black Arrow, which put the Prospero satellite into space. I'm really proud to be working with Lockheed Martin team and our partners delivering the first launch from British soils. That's cool. Maybe you should have just stuck with County Sutherland. <laughs> Yeah, I have no idea. (laughs) I didn't hear about this before you mentioned it. So I looked it up, and yeah, I'm not touching that one. (laughs) Not touching that one. Although it's funny, because the first site that I came up with was The Sun. Okay, make your own comments. Talking about how one of the reasons why they were chosen was because of clear skies. And of course, the picture that's on their website for this article, the sky's full of clouds. Yeah, that is one of the things about it. Scotland is not known for clear skies, to be honest with you, (laughs) but we shall see. But there is also talk of another launch site, this time completely different direction to Scotland, in Cornwall, (laughs) which is the exact opposite end of the UK. Another company making waves at the moment is owned by Sir Richard Branson. His Virgin Orbit company, based in Long Beach, California, has converted an old Virgin Atlantic 747 to dispense its Launcher 1 rocket. Cornwall, in particular, is very keen to have a Virgin Orbit operate out of its Newquay airport. The council and the California company signed a partnership agreement and a first mission is being targeted for 2021. Cornwall is showing ambition, said Adam Painter, the leader of the local council. Years ago, we sent miners around the world. We led the world in mining. That industry has gone. But now we see that a number of new areas that we could excel in and space is one of them. It's all time permitting, and we've got to let the uh, the government do its thing, which uh, I'm not saying any more on that. But um, yeah, I know, I know. But ideally, we could have two options for launching satellites from the UK soil, which has never been done before. So it's quite exciting for us. Well, Scotland, I can definitely understand because that part of Scotland is sparsely populated. It's right near the sea, so. That's pretty cool. Cornwall, though? I, I guess maybe if it's... Well, they're, I guess. They're, they're not launching vertical rockets. They're sending them up underneath a plane and then dropping them. Yeah, and then, that's true. So that's it's, true. it's a bit different. But, and that still could be a good location if they... Now, granted, they don't usually do this, 
but for any rockets that need to be sent westwardly. Mm-hmm. You know, like, because, you know, I mean, obviously SpaceX will launch them from California and send them out west, depending on what the orbit is needed. So, I mean, they could still do it that way if they wanted to. Yeah. Um, and as you said, with the, with the Scottish part of it, how they're proposing it, it it's going to be very similar to the peninsula that they use in New Zealand as it is. So um, it's going to be a very similar setup. We, we mentioned Rocket Lab there, which is the company that are launching stuff from New Zealand at the moment. But they have also confirmed plans to expand its launch capability by developing a US launch site. So not only that they want a launch site in New Zealand, they want hmm. to do one in Scotland, and they also want one in America as well. Interesting. Um, do they say where? Uh, there are four U.S. spaceports shortlisted. Cape Canaveral, obviously. Right. Um, Wallach Flight Facility and the Pacific Spaceport Complex in Alaska. Oh, wow. And the, I honestly didn't even know that we had a spaceport in Alaska. And obviously Vandenberg. <laughs> sure. Um, and it will be called Launch Complex 2. That's strange, because the original is called Launch Complex 1. <laughs> <So> <laughs> Imagine <the> de- that. <laughs> the decision is expected to be made in, in August, so any time now, yeah. really. Rocket Lab are um, really got designs, haven't they? I mean, That's pretty cool. Three yeah. different parts of the world. And Wallops is the one in Virginia, which is run by our friends at the Goddard Space Flight Center. Yeah. That's the one where, if I actually managed to do it, I could see launches coming from that one. Mm-hmm. Just imagine having three different sites, three different parts of the world that they can launch stuff from. I mean, this is a company, a bit like SpaceX, people laughed at it and said it would never happen. Mm-hmm. And what did they do? They launched it straight from from New Zealand, and then that sparked off Australia to say, right, we want in, now we're going to do something. Right, so then that probably made England say, ah, oh, hmm, okay, so we can do this. Forgetting the whole, you know, the whole previous ones. Yeah. You know, obviously they forgot about those, but, hey, you know, it, it, it's I mean, all good. Bring it on. Yeah, I think it's generally getting a really, really exciting time. It has been for the last 10, 15 years. Things have been starting to get very, very interesting. And, you know, the big boys all started to put down the, the smaller companies. And mm-hmm. these smaller companies are not smaller companies anymore. No, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, because for a while, for how many decades it was NASA and most Cosmos. Yeah, pretty much. That was it. And then, you know. and then you got Ariane Spass. Um, mm-hmm. And people, when they started up, said, oh, that would never work. Not from oh. French Guiana. And look at the reliability of the Ariane rockets. Yeah. Unbelievable. As you said, SpaceX. Oh, whatever. This guy used to work for Google. This will never fly. <laughs> That's never going to work. Oh, look at that. Falcon Heavy took off beautifully. The two engines landed beautifully. Yeah, well, SpaceX will never make it. Mm-hmm. And then we've got all these other small startups in, in what, India mm-hmm. and so forth. This is awesome. This is great stuff. India are planning a shuttle. Really? Yeah. Not, not a manned one, I don't think. It's going to be an un man shuttle oh okay but they are planning one so that that's an interesting time i mean you've got countries that uh would ne- you would never think of getting involved in these kind of programs i mean israel are gonna be launching a lunar lander next year so oh wow yeah india's little space shuttle test launch was two years ago yeah got it in into space but mm-hmm. it's it was basically straight up and straight down sure but they did it. Yeah. That is another space industry that are pretty reliable. They've, they're, they're, there's one rocket that they had a few problems with, but they don't tend to use that one very often. Sure, it's, but in fairness, these things aren't exactly as complex as, say, a Saturn V. Mm-hmm. The technology is so easy 
to be able to research this information now and, and you know, with 3D printing and so forth, you could make your own and, and test it. Well, you look at that so, company. Why not? I, I can't remember the name of the company now. Um, these guys, you had one that was was working for, used to work for SpaceX and another used to work for another company. And uh, they went into business designing rocket parts everything is completely 3D printed. Trying to find that company name. Now it's driving me nuts. Relativity Space. That sounds about right. Yeah. There you go. Yep, that's the one. They're hoping to launch rockets that are completely 3D printed. Which makes complete sense, especially now that they can 3D print anything, even steel. Yeah. It's it's an amazing time to be involved in space at the moment. But there's there's so many of these little, little companies that are coming. Proton, there's another one. I think they why are they launching stuff from Atlanta or somewhere like that <laughs> they're small rockets but they're enough to put CubeSats up and things like that mm-hmm. I don't know about Atlanta Atlanta is a city <laughs> you don't want to launch rockets there well you know I mean in uh, in Georgia but um, there's a lot of country around yeah, here it is Arizona based Vector didn't we cover this we maybe did. we didn't we did we did yeah we did? okay yeah, I'm trying to see if it's Spaceport Camden that's the one Camden in Georgia. County. Okay. Yeah. South of Savannah, Georgia. Okay. Because that that one was a surprise on us when it said, "Yeah, there's a spaceport in Georgia." We're like, "What? <laughs> What's going on here?" That's right. That's right. That's right. That's right. I think a lot of people still have that idea, and obviously we fell for it as well. That rockets need to be big, and they you have to have large areas to launch them. And no, you don't. Just need to have enough place to make it to have a safety margin, and the technology to do it. Yeah. So why not? They don't have to be big, just enough to get into orbit. I mean, heck, now when people can make their own stuff and send them into suborbital, you know, or send them up high enough just with their own GoPro cameras on board. Yeah. All you need is a weather balloon. (laughs) Yeah, really. (laughs) I mean, how many bits of Lego have been sent into? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I'm sure a lot. (laughs) Right, yeah, let's start wrapping this up. We'll come back to you in in a moment and uh, see you on the other side. Now you've got the doors stuck in my head. Because <laughs> you said, see you on the other side. So now... Break on through to the other side. Break on through to the other side. It's in my head. This is not necessarily a bad thing. Good morning. It's T minus 45 minutes until the final countdown commences. In less than one hour, if all goes according to plan, the three members of the Apollo 11 crew will blast off in their... My father's name was Edwin Eugene Aldrin. ...has dreamt of mankind's greatest adventure. I became Buzz. Destination, the moon. We look back at the Earth and watch it get smaller. Oh, it was beautiful. Apollo 11, this is Houston. I've got the morning news here if you're interested, over. Go ahead, Houston. An Irishman has won the world porridge eating championship by consuming 23 bowls of instant oatmeal. I'd like to enter Aldrin in the oatmeal eating contest next time. He's on his 19th bowl. <laughs> Roger. Human nature and curiosity is to explore the world around us. And the world around us includes way beyond. Don't you think you're going for landing, over? I don't think. Go for landing. 
generation of explorers should not ever give up. Did you know that right now we have a spacecraft orbiting the moon? The Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter has been at the moon for over seven years, providing unprecedented detail into our nearest neighbor in space. I'm Noah Petro, and for more information about the moon and the LRO mission, go to nasa.gov LRO and follow us on Twitter at LRO underscore NASA. Spanhead Productions are a small independent sound recording company based in rural Hertfordshire. We specialize in creating content for all your podcasting needs, whether it be field recordings, fox pops, or capturing the atmosphere during social events. Editing is a very time-consuming job, so Spanhead Productions are on hand to take away some of the burden for you. Just advise us on how you'd like your content to sound, and we will do the rest. We can even help you design and manage a website for your podcast too. Visitors now spamheadproductions.weebly.com that's spamheadproductions.weebly.com so john how does it feel being back in space it feels good <laughs> <laughs> there's just been a lot of other stuff going on that's the problem and that's that's not a bad thing because no it's not We've had so much to, to put in. I mean, we've, we've had uh, the episode that you did when you went to PAX. We had the Field of Force Day episode, which, by the way, I just want to thank everybody who sent in feedback on that because it was received so well. We've had some nice. really lovely messages from people, even JJ, <laughs> mm-hmm. whose exact words was, that was epic. Oh, i got to get over there somehow. It's really nice to, to hear from different people. Everyone was saying we captured the, the feel of the day, um, which is what I wanted. Mm-hmm. And everybody that has been involved in it, you know, Liz being involved, Alan being involved, we all go for the same reason, because we feel, feel passionate about the event. And we, we just want people to realise that this event is out there and how important it is to people. And... So when we get feedback from people that go to the event and feel the event, that's no pun intended, Mm -hmm. uh, it makes us feel good to know that we've done something right. And uh, that's what we try and do with any event that we attend. We try and get the best feel of it as we can. As you know, with the the PAX episode, we got some really positive feedback from that as Mm -hmm. well, um, from people that were involved in the event. And uh, it got us out there a bit. you know, there was a lot of sharing and <laughs> yeah, and forwarding and, and all kinds of stuff going on. And it, it felt good to know that we did something that people appreciated. You know, and if, if we can help those those game devs sell even one more copy that they wouldn't have otherwise sold, that's a good thing. Mm-hmm, definitely. And uh, it's just getting the word out there. Um, and that's what we're all about. So thank you, everyone, for all the positive feedback we, we get from the episodes that we put out. It means a lot to us because we do put a lot of work into what we do. We appreciate it. We do. We do. And you know what? As long as we're talking about uh, giving shout-outs and so forth, I wanted to give a shout-out to our good friend Steph Evs. Uh, her YouTube channel, The Stimulus. She's only got 2,200 subscribers right now. She's really hoping to try to get 10,000 by the end of the year. 
And if you've never seen her videos, you've got to, because she is a trip. She's an absolute trip. She she goes over science and space and all of that. She does it in a really informative yet silly manner. She loves having fun. She has no problems embarrassing herself if that's what she needs to do. It It's always fun to watch her stuff. So go to the Stimulus over on YouTube. Search it or mark it. We'll have a, a link in the show notes. Let's see if we can get her to 10,000 subscribers by the end of the year. And and she's always been a big supporter of ours. Always. And um, yeah, got a lot of time for Steph. So yeah, let's do this. So John, it's yes. that time again. Uh, it is. It's time for me to badger you about, is your 3D printer done yet? <laughs> it's a few steps no. further than it was. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry, I have to. I'm having so much fun with this. I, I guess I'm just kind of like, dude, you got to do this because it's so much fun. Yeah, it's getting there. It's uh, it's just finding the time. But I am doing I small that. parts of it every now and then. And uh, yeah, I'm, I'm hoping to get it done before the end of the year, put it that way. <laughs> yeah. What's, what do you still have to do with it? I mean, you, you said all the parts are there, right? Yeah, it's, it's just the assembly, doing test work on it and um, just collaborating it and stuff. That's true. I had the benefit of it was ready with some minor assembly out of the box. Mm-hmm. So you have to deal with calibration and all that other stuff. So yeah. firmware upgrades, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it shouldn't be a problem. Uh, there's a lot of guidance videos out there and stuff as well. So uh, that's always helpful. Yeah, that's one thing I noticed too with the one that I got, that there's so much out there to modify it. Mm-hmm. And and make it better. I just replaced the extruder this weekend, and that was it was simple. Take off a couple of screws, disconnect a few cables, pull the extruder off, put the new extruder on, and reconnect everything, and it was done. You know, didn't even need to count. Well, I didn't need to, to level the table and make sure everything was good on that regard. But otherwise, it was just okay. Print the stuff off, and off it goes. Cool. So much fun modifying this stuff. Of course, I'm a geek. I do that. <laughs> so. Once again, it's a pleasure having you on the show, sir. It's always fun to be tolerated one more time. <laughs> and uh, all I can say now is thanks, everyone, for listening. Take care, one and all, and we'll speak to you again real soon. Toodles! Well, that about wraps it up for this episode of TGP Nominal. Be sure to visit tgpnominal.weebly.com for the show notes for this or any other episode. Just look for the relevant tab on the menu. If you want to get in touch with us, then... Send an email to garbagepod at virginmedia.com Because... Your input is our output. Or click on the social media icons on the top left of the page at tgpnominal.weebly.com. If you would like to subscribe to any of our podcasts, you can do so via iTunes, the RSS feed, and also Stitcher and TuneIn On Demand Radio. Don't forget to rate and review us. You can find links on all our podcast pages. If you like what we're doing here, then why not buy us a pint by clicking on the donate button on any of the podcast pages. And don't forget to spread the word about us. Station, this is Houston ACR. Thank you. That concludes the event. Don't think I have. Don't. Yeah, okay. Take two.